0: Welcome, my name is Brian and you're listening to Friends and Music with Brian Doherty. that's me, a podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on this show, please feel free to get in touch. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform, but most importantly, thank you for listening. My guest today is Mike Malone. Mike covers the television industry as a reporter and editor for the trade magazine Broadcasting and Cable and hosts the TV podcast Busted Pilot. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, and the Journal News, and he wrote the Notes from the Tasting Room column for the Captain Lawrence Brewing Company for several years. His novels include Betsy Town and No Never, No More, He lives in Hawthorne, New York, with his wife, two kids, and dog. During this show, we hear about Mike's career as a world-class journalist for many publications, including the New York Times. We talk about his endeavors as a published author and budding screenwriter. Mike is also a huge music fan, so we hear his take on the music biz as well. I hope you enjoy. Mike how are you? I'm good how you doing Brian? Doing great. Mike would you like to
1: introduce yourself and describe a little bit about what what it is you do? Sure sure uh, my name is Mike Malone and uh, I am the father of two kids and a dog and a snake. Um, I am a journalist. Uh, I cover the television business so anything that happens in the TV world I am uh, on a good day, I am all over it. Um, so uh, I, co- I work for a couple tra- TV trade magazines as an editor and a reporter and uh, do a little freelance on the side, uh, do the occasional story on, uh, for the New York Times or, or for the Journal News. And uh, yeah, that, that's my life. Nice. So how did you get into all this? Take, a, journal- take us back. Take,
0: take us all back right. to the early years. We got, we got um, time.
1: Okay. Okay. I, you know, as far as I can remember, it's kind of all I've ever wanted to do. Um, I, I do remember I had a teacher in sixth grade that was like super supportive. I don't know if she saw a hint of talent, but, uh, uh, was supportive of, of me pursuing some writing, creative writing type stuff. So she, she was a big influence, but it's kind of what I've always wanted to do. Um, I, I think like a lot of journalists, it, it you, Get into the workforce, thinking, "Oh, well, eventually, I'll, I'll be a novelist, and this is just kind of a, a writing job until I can get a book deal and make a lot of money and uh, work full time writing books." Um, so it, that was a motivation for me. And then over time, you realize that uh, the lucrative book deals <laughs> for the vast majority are not going to work out, and uh, you're you're a journalist for better or for worse. so You may as well uh, do your best with it. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of. Always wanted to do it. It was, I felt like kind of the one thing I was pretty good at, and uh, really never thought of another career path to be honest with you.
0: The way you describe that, uh, is uh, could be this uh, same for musicians. Musicians think they're going to get a record deal and be and be a rock star, and then you realize maybe, <laughs> maybe not.
1: Yeah, I, I guess the <laughs> equivalent, I, I would be like a, a side man, like a session guy, yeah. um, you know. 30 years down the road or so. And, uh, it's not the worst thing to do. You're still making music, even if you don't have the giant mega album and, and the headlining tour. How is I'm, I'm
0: thinking about, uh, my wife and I were talking about technology last night and, um, the fact that my younger kids may, may not learn how to write the way actually physically write the way we learned how to write like a modeling script and so on. Um, um but that's a major form of communication, right? Right. Writing, writing your ideas down, writing, keeping a journal and any, any thoughts about the way things are changing or the uh, the yeah. evolution of writing?
1: Yeah. You know, the, the old school guy in me thinks, Oh, you know, if you're not writing it down, it it sort of doesn't exist. But I, I really can't imagine there would be an issue for a digital native to just kind of grow up keeping a journal on, Google Docs and uh, uh, and, and getting by without putting pen to paper. You know, it sort of seems inconceivable to a person of a certain age, but the the goal is the same. And uh, even if the process is different, I I think ultimately they can still do a good job of keeping a journal, taking notes, whatever it is they do, uh, just doing it without a pen and, and paper. So did you find yourself when you were younger writing
0: snippets of ideas down in a book or what was your, did you have a method of keeping ideas and, or just collecting thoughts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always scribbled in notebooks. I I was never really a journal or a diary guy, but uh, I've always uh, had a a little memo book nearby with, with some scribblings in there that, that would uh, be an idea for, for, a book project or, or later on, you know, a nonfiction type thing. But yeah, I've always, you know, I, I never really trusted that something that pops into my head will stay there. Um, okay. So uh, I always felt like writing it down just helps you remember it. And then having a place where you can pull it out and, and read it back down the road could, can save a, a good idea from disappearing altogether. Do you have all those books in in one location? I do not. There would be, Dozens, maybe maybe hundreds of them. So uh, once they get full, if if I give them a final look through and see that all the ideas either have been executed or or were deemed to be uh, non starters, then then the book gets recycled. <laughs> um, okay, so take us take us through your, when you're in college. Are you studying journalism uh, or,
0: or writing? Well,
1: it's funny that you would bring that up. Um, I was. Studying journalism and uh, did the first journalism class, you know, journalism 101, whatever it was, did well with that. And then the second one was a Tuesday, Thursday class, 8 a.m. It was my first 8 a.m. class. And I I made a real effort to get to the Tuesday class and and did fine with it. And then Wednesday night, we would go see the band Max Creek in Providence. Mm -hmm. Do you know Max Creek? Yeah, I've heard of them. Okay. All right, it was a, a I they were sort of local guys. Uh, I think they were from Connecticut, but uh they played every Wednesday in Providence for years and years and years. So we would go, we would stay out late, we would have a beer or two and uh I would not wake up for my Thursday class. And uh the, the adult in me these days says, "Well, what if you don't go to the show or what if you go and kind of <laughs> Take it easy and get to bed, and you know it seems like a very avoidable issue. It proved yeah. to be not not so avoidable at the time. So I would go and meet my professor. I'd say, "Hey, I'm so sorry, I missed. I, I wasn't feeling well. Can I make this up?" And then that happened a few times, and finally she said, "You're you're just not going to pass this class." So I looked at the classes I had taken I had a bunch of English credits and uh switched my major from journalism to English
0: nice so what are they doing having an 8 a.m class anyway
1: oh what's up man and it was a long class too (laughs) I I should have known better than I I, it had to be the only time I could take that class otherwise I never would have signed up for it um but it, it was uh it was not something I was able to do at that stage of my life, unfortunately.
0: Maybe maybe you learned just as much, if not more, seeing Max Creek on on Wednesday nights.
1: I, so, I may have made that <laughs> argument to my parents. I don't remember. Um, possibly. Nothing that, that uh, equated into college credits, but I, I did learn plenty going to those shows. So did you jump directly into the world of professional
0: journalism, or was there a transition period? Are you working odd jobs after college? or?
1: Um, I Let me think back. Uh, I, I was still thinking, you know, novelist, write books type thing. So my first job out of school was with a book publisher with William Morrow, and it was a real entry-level job. Uh, I, there was a mailroom. I was not in the mailroom, but it was – running packages out to the production department. Um, And uh, I did that for about a year and, uh, and then uh, found a journalism opportunity that would allow me to, to write and report and uh, shifted to that. So that the first gig was, was with a book publisher where none, none of my English degree skills were, were put to the test in that job. But I, you know, I had access to a lot of books and, Got to hang out with a lot of book people and uh, every single young person at the company had a a novel in the works. So it was kind of fun reading those projects and whatnot. But, uh, um, and then the shift to journalism. um, What was the first, what what was that first journalistic job you got after the mailroom job? It was uh, okay. I, I was playing rugby in New York city at the time and had hooked up with this club that was way out of my league, talent wise, skill wise. Um, So they had moved on to like a national championship setting. And I was not on that A team that was playing in the national championship. I was on the C team that would just, you know, play for fun. Uh, But I I did go to their, their match and somehow got talking with a reporter from the one rugby magazine in the United States. And uh, they were based out of New York. It was like a like a two or three person operation out of a little apartment suite on the Upper West Side. And I, I think maybe a guy on my team was like, Oh, you're, you're a writer. You should meet this other writer. Cause the reporter was affiliated with this club that I, he had played for the club, I think uh, many years ago. So they introduced me and uh, the guy to his credit, like took my name and number down and then he was moving on to another job months down the road and gave me a call. And I guess he had a deal with the editor-in-chief. Hey, if I if I move on, I will try to get you a lead or two in terms of another body coming in. So uh, I did get a call from this rugby magazine and uh, went in for an interview and um, and ended up working with them. And it was an interesting job. As I said, it was three of us and uh, this dinky little suite and, and half the suite was the rugby mag and then the editor's Wife ran a travel agency out of the other half of the suite. Um, and it was all hourly wage. I, I didn't get any paid time off. Um, but uh, I got to write a lot and uh, got to take some fun road trips. Um, sometimes they, there'd be a rugby tournament. They'd say, hey, if you want to fly your reporter out here, we'll get him a motel room and and feed him. Uh, so I, I got to go to, you know, San Francisco and Aspen and uh, Lake Placid upstate and, you know, some fun sort of destination type places that I would not have gotten to go to. So I did that for, for four years. Did you feel comfortable writing about, I mean,
0: I, I guess I'm assuming that since you were already playing it, you knew the game.
1: I did. Did you
0: you feel Was there um, like a learning curve as far as writing about it and covering it? And, and the other, what are some of the other facets of, rugby that maybe didn't know that that you learned?
1: Yeah, no, it was definitely a, a bit of a challenge to uh, uh, to translate a, a knowledge of the game into, you know, a, I don't want to say an authoritative voice, but a voice that didn't sound like they were out of their element. Um, yeah, that, that was a bit of a challenge. But part of the job was reading the, uh, the overseas seasoned rugby writers, uh, what they were writing about the New Zealand team or the England team. And, and those were always men, I think, but men that had been on that beat for, for decades and were quite good at what they do. So that was a good way for me to kind of learn. Um, but I I found that the stuff that kind of worked best with our readers, uh, it was first person stuff. I used to do something called tales from the B side and in rugby, you got your A team that plays the other team's A team. Mm -hmm. And then you got your B side, which is more the, uh, the, the players that are out there for fun. So I did Tales from the B-side and it was just about being a mediocre player and, and some of the challenges of uh, playing this, this fringe sport in New York city and the, the effort of, you know, getting to your game on the subway and then the bus and then hiking over the the Triborough bridge and whatnot. And those seem to really connect. Like when I would go to these tournaments, uh, I, guys would come up to me and be like, Hey, you, you do Tales from the B-side. I, I really kind of relate to that. It's, different city but it's my experience in, in many ways too so nice. they, those seem to play well with, with readers
0: so, so what happens after the rugby mag what, what you uh,
1: So yeah I did that for four years uh, which I think was a record at the time for uh, rugby magazine because it was a very claustrophobic uh, workspace but uh, did that for four years and then moved on to a men's cigar lifestyle-y kind of magazine. It, it, I don't know if it's still around. It, there was Cigar Aficionado. It wasn't Cigar Aficionado. It was this upstart called Smoke. And uh, it was, you know, a third cigar stuff, and then the rest was sports and music and film and TV, and just guy stuff. So it Sounds have...
0: perfect. Sounds perfect, actually.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was it, it, the, the cigar thing. This was... Late '90s, so the cigar thing was a trend in New York. The magazine was enormous. I mean, it was a big, fat magazine with a lot of pages to fill, and uh, I, I I was pretty much kind of free to do what I wanted, um, which was a lot of fun. And you could reach out to, uh, you know, somebody you wanted to interview and uh, and and get a little FaceTime with them because (laughs) the magazine was hot at the time, and uh, yeah, that that was that was fun. It was a a uh, small company um not very professionally run which was kind of fun but uh, could be frustrating as well but uh, that was a good experience so with
0: those pieces are you covering pretty much anything you want as long as it falls into rolls into the guy stuff category
1: uh yeah i didn't get a lot of no's uh pretty much Anything I wanted to do, I you know. in again, the mag was so big and fat that we had to fill pages. So it was like, hey, I want to do this interview with this author. What do you think? Yeah, go for it. Two pages, you know. So yeah, I, I had a mostly a green light there.
0: So what are some of the more memorable pieces and in, in interviews?
1: Oh, oh boy! Oh boy! Who did I interview? Um, I, I got to do a cover story with Dennis Franz. You remember him from yes, uh, from yeah. Street? He was in Hill Street. Oh uh, well, yeah, he was probably on Hill Street. He was on every cop show for a while. <laughs> but uh yeah, he was Sipowitz on NYPD Blue. Mm-hmm. And uh when I was living in the city, they, they would shoot NYPD Blue on my block on Fifth Street. That that was the police station they, they decided to use as their their kind of model cop shop. Uh even though most of the show was shot in LA, but they would come to New York for a week or two and do a bunch of uh location shots. Um so I got to spend a little time with, with Dennis and he was really just the, the kindest, most regular kind of non-Hollywood guy in the world. And, uh, and then, uh, saw him on the street when they were shooting NYPD blue, like six months later and introduced myself. And, uh, cause I, I think it was a phone interview we'd initially had and, uh, and got to chat with him and, and he had nice things to say about the story, which doesn't happen very often. And, uh, it was, it was very kind. And, uh, also had a, a good interview with uh, with Kelsey Grammer uh, which was in a suite uh, like the four seasons or something and uh, and we, we had maybe an hour set up so we did the interview and uh, and he was kind and he was great and he was interesting and then uh, shut the recorder off and we're kind of I'm preparing to say goodbye and we just ended up chatting for another. 20, 30 minutes about oh, wow. music and, and, you know, all sort of off the record, just, just two guys chatting. But, you know, with the, I mean, he was, he was Frazier. He was a big name, definitely yeah. a big name at the time. Um, so usually you get a little celeb time and they do their exact amount of time and they say, thank you very much. Goodbye. And uh, he really did not rush me and we just sat and had some coffee and talked about That's music. Yeah, that was fun. I, that, brings up two questions that I have. One is how do you get,
0: how do you get the, because I'm sure some of these celebrities are promoting something, right? There's a reason that they've, that they like the FaceTime with, with a journalist. Are, Are they, are they constantly promoting something or a product or a new show or.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times it's out of their hands. It's not necessarily something they want to do, but they have a new season of their show coming up and they've got to work with the network to do X amount of media appearances. Um, Other times, uh, yeah, maybe they've got a book out, they've got a movie out. So it's almost always tied to something on the schedule, something they are behind that they're putting out. So does that, knowing that,
0: does that affect how you're going to question them or is, or are the questions just, the questions just come naturally. In other words, like you want, I, I, I guess you'd want to, you'd want to go deeper. You'd want to get them out of the, out of the beaten path or something or off, off the beaten path.
1: Yeah. I, I, I mean, you're talking to them because they've got this new thing out and that's what your readers want. That's what they want to talk about. So you, you cover that, but you know, if you're going to ask 10 or 12 questions, maybe that new season of the TV show or the new movie, maybe it's two or three. And then that means there's plenty of room to uh, talk about the other stuff. Uh, but, you know, you see sometimes the publicists will step in and they'll say, we don't want to talk about this. You know, maybe they had a, maybe it's somebody from Mad Men and now they're on a new show and the new show is on NBC or HBO or whatever. And, they say, "Hey, we don't want to talk about Mad Men." And right. It, basically, it doesn't do us any good to have you spend time with our our person talking about the show from five ten years ago. Um, so you cover what you need to, and because it's timely and it's news, uh, but you always almost always have time for other stuff. Do you find yourself doing
0: more like research beyond the press press release? What you, you know and to, to prepare for an interview or to come up with the questions.
1: You have to, uh, you'll, you'll look foolish if you don't. And you just, you're never going to really go into the interview knowing as much on the topic as the person you're interviewing, but you want to be able to hold your own at the very least. So, uh, for instance,
0: somebody like Kelsey Grammer, do you, are you, let's, we, we, were you a
1: Frasier fan?
0: Were you already watching the show or did, um, did you have to go watch some episodes and,
1: yeah, I definitely watched some. It was trickier in 1999. It wasn't just, you know, call it up on demand. It was right. like, set the VCR. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I was probably more of a fan of Cheers than than Frasier, but I always liked Frasier. It was not in my regular rotation of shows, but uh, always entertained me, always made me laugh, and uh, his character was always a lot of fun. So, uh, um, yeah, it, you would definitely watch some Fraser and, and just kind of read what other people had written about him. I, I remember with him, he had had kind of some skeletons in his closet, some, some tragedies in some his family, life. some family stuff, right? Wasn't there? Yeah. Some? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he'd been in trouble a few times. It just had some things that he had nothing to do with they, some, some family deaths that were, that were pretty horrific.
0: And, um, yeah cuz somebody like Kelsey Grammer I think I'd want to ask him a bunch of questions about Cheers. Yeah, just for myself, but he's probably so tired of people asking him about Cheers and making references to Cheers.
1: Yeah, I I don't remember how it went with him, but usually you know, they'll answer a few questions and if you if you're spending half an hour talking about the show they did 5 years ago, you might get a little subtle hint from them to Get up to, to present day, right
0: okay, so tell tell us about what you 're doing now, so you you're a writer who 's covering television
1: yeah, cover television so tell um, us
0: so tell us about t- tell us about that
1: uh, i've got a cover story out today um, it's uh, I work for two trade magazines, one is called Broadcasting and Cable, and most of those readers are kind of traditional. Broadcast people, people that work at TV stations, people that work at ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. Uh, Multi channel news is more the cable business. Uh, So I've got a cover out today. It's on all the shark stuff on TV this summer. Uh, Shark Week on Discovery starting next week. And then Nat Geo has Shark Fest. And then uh, Sci Fi has, I hope I get the name right, I think it's One Last Bite Out of Summer where they show all the Sharknado movies and this whole lineup of what sound like super duper cheesy shark movies, like six headed shark is one of them. So uh, that's cover story out um, on August three, all about all the shark stuff. And and as always, you need to find something new. Like it can't just be, Hey, there's a lot of shark stuff this summer because there's always shark stuff. So uh, one thing that discovery said was with, COVID, and every story kind of ties into COVID these days somehow, unfortunately, but uh, with people off the beaches in the spring, in springtime here, but in New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, you know, in in March, in April, it kind of changed shark behavior. So, uh, and without boats cruising by and, and ships and whatnot. So sharks were a little more uh, free to kind of do what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, so that was a pretty big focus for Shark Week on Discovery. Shark Fest said we'll, we'll probably I, we think it's too early to really talk about change in shark behavior, so that they'll probably do the more of that next year. And their their shark event started like three weeks ago, um, but that was kind of the big timely hook for me. And then in terms of other stuff, I, I got to interview uh, Maria Bartiromo. Um, nice. formerly of CNBC, now she's on Fox Business, and uh, she marks 25 years since she first went on the air, uh, August 4, I think it was, on, on CNBC. So uh, got to speak with her about um, what has changed over the course of 25 years and what was kind of going through her head that first day on the air, and uh, got to ask her about uh, the Joey Ramone song, Maria Bartiromo, and... Uh, <laughs> how she found out about it. And uh, that was kind of a fun story because um, she said that she would get emails from Joey Ramone and she never ever thought it was Joey Ramone. Really? There's somebody else named Joey Ramone or somebody just using his name. So she would get emails about the stock market. Like, Hey, what do you think about Intel? What do you think about this, this tech stock and whatnot? So that went on for a bit. And then they elevated to phone calls. And then uh, one day he said, Hey, I wrote this song about you. And she's like, wait, you're actually Joey Ramon. So uh, he had invited her to come to CBGB's mm-hmm. to see him play the song Maria Bartiromo, I, I guess for the first time. And uh, she said, and he said, oh, I'm on it at midnight, I'm on at 12.30. And she said, dude, I wake up at 3.30, I'm on the air at six. I'll send a camera crew, but I can't do it. And she told me she will regret that for the rest of her life because she didn't know he was sick. And then uh, oh. his, his health uh, went downhill pretty quick and and, and he died. So uh, she, she was able to have a, a camera crew there to, to shoot him doing the song, but she regrets not being able to go and see him perform. I, I can't say that I know the song. Okay. Um,
0: but I, I, I take it you know it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I know it. Um, yeah, Joey did a solo album, uh, I don't know the year, uh, early two thousands. I forget when he died, maybe late nineties. I don't even know, but, but a good album with uh, a cover of wonderful, what a wonderful world. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, the Maria Bartiromo song, it's called Maria Bartiromo and uh, it's really just his, I mean, it's sort of a silly song. It's, you know, how, how pretty she is and whatnot, but, uh, he, Kind of had sounded like he had a little crush on Maria and, and wrote a song about it. Gotcha! Wow, yeah, very very interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, so when you talk about television, I'm thinking now that television almost covers everything because it's really like, like you mentioned earlier, you can call up anything, go to any, pretty much any service you want, get any movie, and even like even I discover if I'm searching for a movie that that's already available under the Amazon umbrella, that I'm already a prime member of it, for, for, for instance, but, but um so do you feel like it's all coming into like one, you know, t- television is pretty much anything that's that comes onto the TV screen in your house
1: uh, other than,
0: other than a movie, let's say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you. my job is, entertainment and news and sports as well okay. uh so okay. it's it's a wide range of stuff and it, just in terms of the number of networks the number of original shows i you know they started calling it peak tv like years ago And and there was really the sense three or four years ago that we had hit the peak and not every network could afford to do 10 original shows every year and there would be a Uh, a slide down in terms of the number of original shows. And I have not seen any indication that that's happened. Um, Original stuff is really the way to kind of brand your network in, in this super crowded time and the networks are investing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's become this era where it's like, you know, it's on you to decide like, okay, we've got Netflix, we've got Amazon prime, we've got Hulu. Do we also want to pay for Disney plus? Well, they've got Hamilton. We would definitely want to see that. Uh, And then, you know, there's, there's Peacock and, and and some of them are free and that that makes the uh, decision making process a little easier, but uh, it's, it's a busy time in the TV world. And, uh, and yeah, it's, and, you know, less and less of it is turning on the TV and clicking the remote more of it's just sneaking off to, quiet room in the house and watching on your laptop but uh yeah, you know, seeking, a lot of stuff seeking it
0: out it's like a, seems to me it's a lot about seeking out a specific thing to to watch that for you know either a movie or a documentary or something that in the old days we would just channel surf you know yeah i, I find myself doing less of that and and more strategic you know seeking out of something, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot less, you know, you used to just sit through something for a half an hour or an hour. It's something that you just weren't into and you're like, there's nothing else on. I, I've already surfed, flicked through all the channels and this is the best I'm going to do. And I also want to watch that thing that's on at 10 p.m. So I'll just keep it on here. Like, we don't really do that anymore. If something doesn't grab us, we just move on. There's something right. that we've been meaning to watch on hulu on netflix and we're just not going to (laughs) waste 45 minutes of prime viewing time on something that we're not into
0: yeah good good point i've got i've got a lot of questions um but before i because i'd like to talk about music yeah I'd i'd like to talk about beer okay i'd like to talk about some of your other endeavors including your podcast and your screenplay and but before we do that can can I just what what do you do do you ever find yourself what do you do when you're not jazzed about something that you have to cover you've got a deadline how does I know you're a professional writer what's if you're not really I, either you're not interested in in the particular angle or the subject matter what what is it that gets you through
1: I, to, the, you to just, the finish line yeah no it's a good question you get it done uh it's going to happen you know i i'm there's no job in the world where somebody is super pumped about what they do every day and you just kind of remind yourself that they're paying you and they're paying a big chunk of your health insurance and and your kids kind of need that and your mortgage needs to be paid. So you suck it up and just apply the principles that you apply on, on stories that you love to do and, uh, and you get it done. You have to. Right.
0: Right. So it's kind of like, it's a mindset and maybe you're not, you're not that attached to it emotionally. Right.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes work feels like work and th- those are the times when your job feels like something you kind of need to do instead of something you want to do.
0: Doesn't it sound like you can be a procrastinator if you're if you're writing on a deadline.
1: Uh, I, I, yeah, there's not much wiggle room. Um I, and you know, a, a lot of reporters don't meet their deadlines and and you know, everybody misses one now and then, but, uh, I, I do take a lot of pride in my editors knowing that I, I will hit my deadline. So, nice. uh, yeah. And I just find it a really good motivator. You know, you, yeah. you, whether you have three days to do a cover story or a week or two weeks, like you will kind of take that amount of time and adapt your workload accordingly. And yeah, I don't necessarily feel like it needs to be that way. You know, if I don't need, if I can do in four days, what I have two weeks to do I may as well just get it done and move on to the next thing.
0: Nice. Good. Let's talk about music a little bit. When I first met you, you had a big piece in the New York times in the arts and leisure section about black
1: 47. I did. It was, it was the metropolitan Oh,
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was an interesting story. Uh, You know, you're asking about stories that you're not that, psyched to do. And that was when I was super psyched, like every so often you get a story that just kind of fits your interests and fits your strengths too. And i had seen Black 47 quite a bit when I first moved to the city, like early 90s. And and they played out of an Irish bar on Second Avenue. And a, a lot of it really fit my interests. And I was super, super pumped to get into the story and uh and went all out in terms of sources but besides talking to all the band members but went all out on sources that could talk about black 47 i I interviewed billy bragg Mm -hmm. who if i recall correctly he was not familiar with the band but he kind of knew what they were about and was super supportive of of them Tackling social issues, tackling politics, tackling history, and having something to say in their lyrics, and he was lamenting that they were winding down. But uh, was it?
0: Were were you? Was this piece on their last gig? Were were you covering their last ever gig?
1: uh, It was correctly. I, I I went to see them at a country club over in like. Rockland County, maybe. It was like a golf course place with a little kind of 19th hole club and they were playing that club. And uh, I don't think it was their dead last, but they had already announced that they were winding down. So it was one of the final appearances by the band. And I I remember that the singer saying, oh, you should see us at, I, I forget if it was Patty Riley's or whatever their home bar was in the city so that's much more kind of our
0: right
1: our our home base and and besides it being a little easier for me to get to rockland county i kind of wanted to see them out of their element like how does this super seasoned band connect with an audience that maybe is just some golfers that kind of wandered in off the golf course instead of a room full of people that have seen them a hundred times so uh so th- what do was- think I thought they, they put on a really fun, entertaining show. Um, the black 47 wasn't for everybody, but, uh, the singer, Larry Kerwin just, he, he went all out every time he played. And he was an older gentleman too. He was not a kid. And, uh, he gave it his all. And I, I developed, I, I always respected the band knew they were hard workers and knew they were super creative, but, uh, the respect level went up to another level, just watching them. I, I I recall it being a bit of a skeptical crowd early on, like people just were sitting around having a beer, watching the game, and uh, and just watching Larry work from the front of the band to get people engaged. Uh, they, they did a good job with it.
0: It just sounds like, uh, well, first of all, it, it reminds me of a lot of, well, not, I know of some, like, just career bands. Like, they're going to... They're going to be bands no matter what and play. The Damned is one. We, yeah. Um, through thick and thin, good gigs, bad gigs. Um, Smithereens, another. Yeah. That um, well, they've had a good deal of success, and
1: uh, I mean Black Forty Seven, so the Mekons. Yeah, like, you know the weird thing about Black Forty Seven, like I, I remember this happening that they we playing Patty Riley's early nineties. And then they just took off. They, they got the record deal. They were on the late night shows and there was definitely a sense among those that would see them at Patty Riley's see them this week because like, who knows where they're going to be in a month that these guys are taken off. And it, it sort of happened, but they were back to playing the pubs before too long that they, they didn't really, I mean, I know no Irish band is ever really going to conquer the mainstream, but they, they didn't really move out of the pub scene. And uh, that can yeah. be, I, it's easier than traveling, I guess, as long as you're still playing pubs in the New York area. But uh, that, that's a tall order for, for a band, just to be playing in the pubs for decades, really.
0: Yeah. What do you, What do you think they're doing now? Have you done any follow-up?
1: Like I have not. It, it was a, a big band. They had seven guys or so, um, and they were not, not kids, again. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm guessing Larry Kerwin, the, the singer, is is recording solo stuff. Uh, he's an author as well. I think he was doing some tours in Ireland. I'm mm-hmm. sure he's, he's keeping busy. The other guys, I, I guess they've hooked up with other bands. I, I don't know. I don't know. How much so do you, do you enjoy covering music? I I do. I it's uh I, I'm not a musician, so it's a little like cooking or covering cooking and covering food without being a chef. Uh you, you do feel like you may be exposed if somebody starts asking you some questions. Uh I, I'm a listener of music and and I've always listened very intently. So I, I can weigh in as a listener but it, you do fear like oh somebody will find out that you can't play more than a few open chords on the guitar and yeah, call you, can, you out on
0: you can get into the character right The, the t- telling the story of you know the character right i think so you know. yeah i think so so have you done other interviews with musicians
1: um yeah i interviewed nick cave nice. um yeah. Yeah, that was for playboy.com. Uh, he, he, was, he was not nice. Uh, that was a, uh, a hotel in Manhattan and, uh, he just did not want to do the interview and, and really could not have been <laughs> less accommodating. And I, I remember, and I, I think I, I, I was always a big fan. I was a little nervous, you know, it was fairly early in my career. I, I, would not be nervous now, I was a little nervous, and um I said to him, "Oh, Harry's Dream is one of my favorite albums, and he said it's called Henry's Dream, and it can't be one of your favorite albums if you don't know the title of it <laughs> so uh, that that was a tough one but, uh,
0: I could but feel I, my face I could feel my face getting red right now,
1: yeah yeah, okay, yeah. so uh, <laughs> yeah um yeah that stuff. Um, Interviewed uh, Shane McGowan for, for playboy.com as well. And that that was a lot of following going to spots where we're supposed to meet in Manhattan, lugging this heavy at the time digital recorder and him not showing up and it it, it took three or four tries to finally get him to sit still. And it finally did happen, but he was, he was challenging.
0: Well, he certainly has that reputation. I've never, I've never met him, but that, one Pogue's album, "If I Should Fall from Grace with God," is, you know, one of my favorite. I know, I know it's, I know it's typical, but still one yeah. of my favorite albums. You know, yeah. I, want, yeah. I wonder if I wonder if he's tired of people asking
1: him questions about that. I, I don't know. I, you know, if if you create something that is so meaningful to so many people, hopefully you're always kind of psyched to to talk about it and hear people ask about it. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Let's talk about beer, shall we? I would love to talk about beer.
0: So a while back, you hosted your own podcast called uh, Books and Beer or Beer and Books. Yes. Books tell and us, Beer. Tell us about it.
1: Okay. Um It started off as a radio show, um little AM station down in New Rochelle. there the be a VOX, I think it's called. And I was a guest on a show. I, I forget the details, but I was on a, a guest on a show and, uh, and met the owner of the station as soon as I walked out of the studio. And he, and he, I was still working at, at the television magazine at the time. And he, he had done some events with our publisher and he was a fan of the magazine. So he said, Hey, if you ever want your own show, you should think about it and do it here. I said, okay. And I kind of thought about it and, didn't think too much. And then I ran into him at an industry event and he said, Hey, you know, still waiting on you to do your show. So, um, having been asked twice to do a show, I I thought about it a little more. So I decided, well, what do I really like to talk about? I like to talk about books. I like to talk about beer. So pitched them a show where it would be me and a local author guest. We would talk about their book and we would sample a beer to local craft beer. And they said yes. So uh, I arranged. I, I think it was every two weeks. I would go to the station, and we would do books and beer, and um, and had the beer in a little tote bag with ice, and had my guest, and uh, were. And I'm nervous. I've never done a radio show. <laughs> we're two minutes from being live on air, and they're and I'm like, kind of, uh, "I'm sorry, I I don't drink anymore." <laughs> I know you know what it was? It was the station manager saying, I don't think we can drink beer on the air. I think oh. that was an a foul of FCC regulation. <laughs> and I said, you know, I shot you the the treatment for, for my, my show several weeks ago and I didn't hear any pushback then. So uh we agreed that we would sample the beer during commercial breaks and then hmm come out of the break and talk about the beer. Um, right. so I did that for, I don't know, maybe a year and, uh, and it was a lot of fun, but it was harder and harder to get out of work for that. I mean, it was an hour show. It would end up being a couple, couple hours. hours. Yeah. Yeah. And initially I told my editor sort of like, uh, being a musician to write about music, I said, you know, I'm writing about stuff for broadcast people. I I will speak the language better if I too am a broadcaster. And they said, yeah, go for it. And then there were a few instances where big news would break. I would be on the show not, not working. So uh, I stepped down from the radio gig and converted the show to a podcast. So I would record out of, um, pub called the oath in tarrytown and uh, i was right on the main drag tarrytown not there anymore but mm-hmm. that they were I a know. real craft beer cathedral you would not go in and ask for a bud light there right um so uh so that was fun i i we would go in the back room and i would have my guest on and we would sample some beer and there were no fcc regulations to uh to live right. by and uh did that for a while and then uh And it just got to be a little too much in terms of programming it and executing it. Uh, But we did uh, 12 or 15 episodes from from the pub in Tarrytown.
0: It just sounds like um, how how could you just have two? How could you just have a couple beers if if you're drinking beer in in the day and talking about books? Yeah. (laughs) It'd be easy to keep going.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you have to remember that you're you're recording a show. You never, you never want to kind of lose your your, your sharpness, uh, and you got to drive home too. So uh, we would try to keep it in check. But uh, but that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing that.
0: Continuing with the beer, with your love of beer, uh, tell us about notes from the tasting room. And I guess keep in mind that some listeners may not know where Captain Lawrence is and and, and what it is.
1: Yeah. um, Captain Lawrence is our our Westchester brewery, and there are a bunch of breweries in Westchester now, but Captain Lawrence was up and running way before any of the others. Um, Not sure exactly when they started, but it probably like 2004 or so. So they were well ahead of the uh, the craft beer trend. And uh, they had moved into, they, they were based out of Pleasantville, a little hole in the wall place. And then when they got bigger, they moved into a big industrial space in Elmsford. So I remember going to check out the new space and, and buy some beer and thinking, boy, they got a big tasting room. It, it's going to be, maybe it'll be challenging for them to, to fill it. So uh sent a kind of a cold call letter to Scott Vaccaro, to the owner, and pitched him an idea where I would go in once a week and I would speak with people and just kind of find out what they were drinking, who they were, how they ended up coming to the brewery that day um, and take some photos. And I would call it notes in the tasting room. And, uh, and I would share it on social media and uh, some other beer and food blogs. And he said, go for it. So it was, it was a paid gig. And uh, part of my pay was, was credit on the the captain Lawrence uh, beer card, which was fun. I was getting paid in beer so I did that for <laughs> years and years and years. And that, um, and,
0: that, and that turned into a book, yes?
1: It did turn into a book, mm-hmm. yeah. Once I'd done over a year's worth, I probably had 60 or 70 of the essays with photos in the can. So uh, so I, I put out the book myself. I just did it through Amazon. And, uh, and they sold the beer in the tasting room. And uh, it, it was not a big seller. It was, you know, I think it was 10 bucks. And I thought it was a worthwhile ten bucks. But if you have ten bucks in the tasting room of a brewery, you're probably going to buy beer instead of a about <laughs> beer. So uh, was not a big seller. But uh, it, it and I told Scott, I, I said you will be happy to have this book as yes. a keepsake, a, kind of a memory of what happened in your tasting room. You know, maybe you end up like becoming this this global brand, and and this will be a snapshot of life in the brewery in in the early days yeah 2009 yeah. or whatever it was so yeah did, that was you, a fun. Um,
0: did you ever stumble upon any you know did you can you give us a one memorable interview that i don't know just something that surprised you
1: yeah yeah i um saw these two big uh, kind of husky guys sitting by themselves out on the patio and and two guys sitting by themselves that, that was kind of an easy mark for me it would be easy to get their names down and talk to them and kind of easier to get two than to get a group of six um so i approached them and uh they were they were friends from uh from iraq that they had fought overseas and uh and i remember them saying that that they just found that the brewery helps them unwind you know it's nice. it's quiet it's peaceful they like the beer they they said if it gets too crowded too noisy we're probably moving on but uh right. for them the, the idea of coming early before it got crowded and just sitting out in the sun on a nice day and you know talking with with an old friend with a, a similar experience horrific as it as it may be that they both found that uh pacifying i, I found yeah. that really really
0: interesting that's very very interesting and um can could we, could we, could we talk about your life on the Lower East Side for a minute or two? Sure, absolutely. Because you, you mentioned Dennis France and the uh, police station there. Yep. But you you moved to New York, and that's, I take it that's where you were living, the Lower East Side?
1: Yeah, I was on Fifth Street uh, between 1st and 2nd Avenue, moved in in, like, 92, and was there for a long time, probably probably 12 years or so until uh, I was engaged and, and moved in with my, my fiance, my, now my wife uh, and moved up to uh, 18th street. But yeah, it was on fifth street right in the heart of the East village for, for years and years and years. And the East village back then was not what it,
0: what it is today, right?
1: Uh, it was up and coming. Um, it was, you still felt the Ukrainian influence quite mm-hmm. a bit. I, I don't think you see nearly as much of that now, Um, you didn't have a lot of kids from well-off families. Um, What I remember at the time, it was very typically, it was four people in a three-bedroom. It was three people in a two-bedroom. People were (laughs) squeezing in because the rents were getting a little high. Um, You still didn't really go beyond Avenue A in terms of the alphabets. There just wasn't much out there, and there was definitely – a fair bit of crime and, and a lot of drugs. So, uh, Avenue A way was lively, but uh, you didn't really go. You didn't go beyond Tompkins, and Tompkins had when I moved in, it had just reopened after being shut down, and that was one of the very early instances of video cameras capturing uh, police violence uh, when there was a big riot in Tompkins, and they were looking to clear the park out of its. It's inhabitants. It's squatters. Uh, right. So park had closed for several months and reopened, and was gorgeous—just freshly planted grass and, wow. and super clean. And for a new resident in the neighborhood, it was especially one from the suburbs with with the backyard. It was a bit of a godsend.
0: A while back, I read your book when I was punk. Yep. And you, did you write it during this period of your life?
1: Uh, I did. I did. Yeah, that was... Uh, tell, uh, tell us more about it. Oh, I hope I can remember it. It was uh, two different perspectives. Uh, two guys living in or around Tompkins Square Park. Uh, one older who had been there quite a bit, lived in an apartment. And one living on the streets. And, uh, and uh, them both offering kind of different perspectives on... The neighborhood as it as it changed and evolved, uh, but also having a lot of a lot of common ground and seeing a lot of the stuff kind of the way most people would see the stuff at the time
0: so, and it sounds like that was um i i I remember reading it and just you know you you had scenes around Tompkins Square Park and living living that New York city apartment lifestyle in the hot summer and roommates and stuff like that. And if you've ever lived in New York city as a youngster, that's pretty much the way you're going to live. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A big focus of it were these kids that would roll in once early spring hit and they would just live in and around Tompkins, live in some of the squats around Tompkins, but uh, I, kids, I would, I say kids. I mean they're teenagers, but but people I would pass all the time every day, and just got more and more interested, and uh, ended up interviewing quite a few of them to kind of get their backstories and get a feel for what life was like for them, and uh, incorporating incorporating that in, into when I was punk. So uh, uh, yeah, it was. I, I was just fascinated with with the notion of like, and a lot of these kids came from rough upbringings, but the notion of just leaving home and, and living on the streets uh, yeah. to me was kind of inconceivable. And I was very curious to hear where they came from and, and how they ended up turning up at, at Tompkins.
0: Let's so unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but I think we could, we could, t- we could wrap it up with by combining your love of beer and your, and a current project you have, which is your screenplay. Yeah. Go ahead uh okay yeah the, the screenplay it's um and, and it's, by the way for those listening i've I've read it and it's excellent
1: well thank you very much yeah. um yeah i'd never done one before it was always sort of on on the far reaches of my my to-do list uh so finally took it on uh about a year ago or so yeah it's called uh hope i got the title right hops spring eternal mm-hmm. and if any brewery out there wants to use that as their tagline uh reach out to me and we can uh work out a a deal involving beer um but yeah it's called hops spring eternal and it's for i think it's four friends five friends four friends a a group of dad friends in westchester and uh they're kind of bored with their lives so they plot this getaway to the breweries of vermont and they decide the only way they'll get the okay from from Their spouses is to say that one of the guys is dying. He's got this deadly disease, and it is his wish that the friends all go up to Vermont and sample some good beer at the brewery. Isn't it funny what we
0: have to? I'm sorry to interrupt, Mike, but isn't it funny what we have to do to justify drinking beer to our wives?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's got to involve death. Yeah, I know. These guys construct this elaborate <laughs> lie and uh, the, the, the they don't tell the friend that they say is the one that is supposedly dying. They don't tell him right. until the drive up to Vermont and he's yeah. not happy about it. So as a, a reader of the screenplay and down the road a uh, viewer of the movie, you kind of suspect something bad will happen to him and uh, something bad does happen, but but not to him. So uh it was, it was fun getting it together, and uh, I have no idea if a professional reader of screenplays would read it and say, there's something here, or this guy is a, a complete hack, but uh, I was able to scratch it off the to, to-do list, so that, that felt good. Nice. Well,
0: we hope to see it in production soon. As do I. And hope to see it on the big screen before, before we know it. Um, well, I want to thank you for joining me, Mike, for this, for this conversation. Is there any way for listeners to get in touch with you or is, can they search your yeah. name whatever, you know,
1: Yeah, I, you can, uh, email me at Mike Malone, M-A-L-O-N-E 5-A. That is number five, letter A. That was my apartment in the East Village for many, many years. So Mike Malone 5-A at com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BC Mike Malone. And, uh, I, I keep a bunch of my published stuff on a website called Malone rights. Dot Hopefully that's the correct address. I, I think it is, but I, nice. I keep some of my, my newer stuff on, on the website there for others to, to read.
0: Well, thank you, Mike. And we're going to, we're going to check all those out and we're going to follow you. And, um, Thanks again for the conversation.
1: Brian, this was really a lot of fun. I appreciate your interest, and uh, thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care, Mike. Take care. Bye.
0: Well, folks, we're going to leave it there for today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please remember to subscribe. You've been listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music were provided by me and my band Treat and Release, which is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me and my work, I can be found on all social media platforms or by visiting my website at BrianDohertyDrummer.blogspot.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.